Downtown, the podcast. Hey, welcome in. Episode number 88 from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Rich Kimball with Carrie Haskell. Podcast brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We've got two interesting conversations on the program for you this week, including a, a baseball expert who knows the qualifications for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, probably like nobody else around, and historian and author Michael Sokolow from the University of Maine. A very interesting conversation with him coming up in the second half of the podcast. Uh, Michael spent the spring semester in Australia, so he's got a pretty good idea of what's happening with the bushfires there. And also talks about the presidential race and some of the developments in that along the way. But first this week on the podcast, we welcome back Jay Jaffe senior writer for Fangraphs and the author of the Cooperstown Casebook. Jay devised the JAWS analytics method of taking a look at qualifications for the Baseball Hall of Fame. And we talked with Jay about, uh, well, who ought to be in, who probably will get in this year, and also, of course, the big baseball scandal that broke on the day we spoke with him involving the Houston Astros and potentially the Boston Red Sox and their manager, Alex Cora. What's your initial take on all of this? I guess I'm impressed with the severity of the of the punishments. Uh, um, you know, both uh, Luno and and uh, Hinch uh, being suspended for a year and subsequently losing their jobs. Obviously, that's a big deal. Um, the loss of the draft picks is is actually probably the biggest financial impact. I'm mm. going through that right now, based on our methodology here at Fangraphs uh, for giving a uh, present day value of the picks. That's about thirty million dollars worth of draft picks that they lost there which dwarfs the $5 million fine uh, that they're paying. Um, a little surprised that, uh, that Jim Crane himself escaped uh, uh, direct punishment, although losing that much uh, uh, money in, you know, in terms of fines and, and other value is obviously uh, a significant punishment unto itself. Um, not surprised that the players weren't disciplined. Um, you know, to do that, uh, they would have had to uh, involve the players' union, uh, which would have been uh, defending the players. Uh, all that stuff is subject to collective bargaining agreement uh, and uh, much more complicated. And, and, you know, what they were talking about was the failure of leadership uh, of these teams uh, to, you know, to enforce uh, these rules. And that's really where Rob Manford. Uh, drew his line in the sand. So uh, I would expect Alex Cora is in big trouble. He's going to get at least a year suspension, and uh, uh, I would expect he's going to be out of a job too. Yeah, I mean, right in the middle of what happened in Houston, apparently even uh, acting after A.J. Hinch tried to destroy some of the technology they were using, and then that system worked so well, hey, let's bring it to Boston. Well, they, they had a different system going in Boston that, that was not uh, maybe not quite as egregious, but uh, uh, it happened after uh, Manford issued his uh, his warning in September uh, 2017. So uh, the Red Sox knew they were over the line. Cora is singled out within uh, Manford's report here. Um, you know, it doesn't doesn't mention very many names there besides Luno and 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 Hinch, but. Beltran gets Carlos Beltran gets one mention as as one of, I think he's the only position player mentioned the only hitter uh, and then uh, 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 Mike Fires obviously for his role as the whistleblower uh, to the athletic reporters uh, and then it, it's it basically it describes the system as being player driven with the exception of bench coach Alex Cora um, and obviously now there's an investigation into the Red Sox. Uh, 
uh, conduct. So I would imagine he uh, could get, uh, let's say, twice as long as as, as Hinch in suspension, which obviously uh, would probably also mandate uh, his his firing and 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 who knows what else. Wow. Uh, well, ostensibly, we uh, had you on today to talk about the Baseball Hall of Fame, but this story certainly uh, took prominence uh, this afternoon. But let's talk about the Hall. I've been loving the series of pieces you've been doing on Fangraphs about the one-and-dones. They were great. Oh, thank you. Um, my favorite, I think, of all of them. Well, a couple of them, and they were actually together. Carlos Pena, a guy I I got to call some of his games when he was playing his college ball at Northeastern. Oh, wow. and he was one of those guys that uh, you know, didn't have the career that people projected for him, but an interesting story. Yeah, definitely. And, and uh, you know, it uh, took a, a, a very uh, uh, interesting path to – uh, to the majors, in that uh, uh, his his parents, uh, his family emigrated from uh, from the Dominican Republic and, and uh, uh, settled in Massachusetts. And uh, uh, he had uh, two brothers that were also ball players, one of whom played professionally. And he went to Northeastern and studied engineering. Um, really interesting guy. I've actually done television with him uh, before uh, at MLB Network. Uh, uh, obviously, very intelligent. Uh, uh, what he knows goes well beyond the baseball field. And, and, you know, he had some big years there for the Rays. He was a transformative figure uh, in their in their history. He joined them in 2007, had a big season after so many uh, disappointments with the Tigers and the A's and the Rangers and, 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 and being traded and bouncing around briefly to the Yankees and Red Sox as well. Uh, suddenly put it all together in Tampa Bay and was a huge figure for them, uh, part of that 2008 pennant-winning team and uh, – uh, led the league in homers once, and uh, uh, just a very interesting career. And, and another guy who who had some moments and put up some overall good numbers, uh, Alfonso Soriano, 412 career homers, nearly 300 stolen bases, a, a 28.2 war. What's keeping him out of the hall and making him likely a one-and-done? Well, he was, you know, he wasn't much of a defender either at second base or in left field. He had some big seasons in left field initially uh, when he could still utilize his speed, but uh, uh, knee problems slowed him down. He was also, he was, he was a hacker. I mean, uh, uh, he had years where he had his on-base percentages uh, were around 300 or lower. Uh, he was a, he. There was I think it was his rookie year. It took him till like 25th game to draw his first walk. <laughs> uh, so, tremendous power, tremendous speed. 40-40 uh, season. Uh, uh, the last of the four 40-40 seasons in baseball history was done by him in 2006. Uh, multiple 30-30 seasons. A lot of fun to watch. Uh, but uh, you know, kind of an erratic ball player. Uh, in some senses. We're talking with Jay Jaffe here on downtown. So beyond the obvious, and I guess to me that would be Derek Jeter, out of this group that's on the ballot this year, and and let's move the steroid guys to the side for a moment, who else should be? Well, I'm a big proponent and have been for years of of Larry Walker's case. Um, It's going to be a nail-biter as to whether he gets in this year, his his tenth and final one on on the writer's ballot. Um, he's made a, a, a nearly unprecedented climb from the from the dregs. He was only getting about uh, 10 to 11 percent uh, a few years ago, but uh, uh, the work of the stat heads like myself has has shined a light on his merits and uh, really underscored the extent to which he was a true five-tool player, excelling on the bases and in the field as well as at the plate, uh, and adjusting for his time at uh, 
uh, at altitude with, with, with the Rockies when he put up some video game-like numbers. But uh, uh, I think it's going to be a nail-biter. Hopefully he gets in, but if not this way, then I think they, by the era committee uh, down the road. What about Scott Rowland? Uh, as Scott Rowland is making some big advances. He's, another, he's a guy kind of that fits that mold uh, where the, the, the analytics, uh, I think, are really helping him. Uh, right now, the early uh, published votes, he's got over 50%. I think he's probably going to wind up cl- closer to 40%, but that would be more than doubling uh, what he got last year, which was about 17% in his second year on the ballot. Um, again, another guy whose case I'm a big proponent of uh, and, and happy to see it. Uh, also seeing gains from guys like Todd Helton um, and uh, Gary Sheffield, uh, two guys who, who I'm behind more so Helton in terms of uh, my statistical system, the uh, the JAWS methodology, uh, than Sheffield. But I have a very visceral, visceral appreciation for the <laughs> latter, uh, having watched him uh, up close with the Yankees. Uh, any shot for Jeff Kent, or is that passed? You know, I'm kind of surprised that Kent has lagged to the extent that he has. Um, I always figured that having that, that home run record for second baseman and being a 100 RBI guy several times and having an MVP award on his mantle uh, would make it pretty smooth sailing for him. But, you know, he was a prickly character. Um, the uh, the advanced stats uh, don't uh, really uh, favor him all that well. Kind of a middling on-base percentage for a big slugger and bad defensive metrics. And he's really lagged. He's been below 20% for several years, and right now, even even with the you know the additional ballot space for for voters to play with, they've put uh, some of the guys we just talked about ahead of him, and he's getting only about twenty eight percent. So uh, I would say he's probably a guy who could do well in front of the uh, the era committee, uh, not unlike uh, Jack Morris uh, uh, a couple of years ago and Fred McGriff uh, probably the next time around. I think Kent's a guy who, if he's going to get into the hall, it's going to be through that route. Bobby Abreu, to me, is an interesting case. Maybe it's because he was around a long time, and I I forget how good he was, but then you look at the numbers. He was so so quietly excellent, just an on-base machine, good power, great speed. Um, You know, the big problem for him uh, was that he just, he escaped notice, particularly in those years in Philadelphia when he was at his best. Uh, only made two all-star teams, won one gold glove uh, before his defense really deteriorated. Um, you know, he's struggling to get uh, to, to maintain a, a share above 5%. I'm not terribly optimistic about that. Um, you know, I think if he does, he'll survive for another year on the ballot, maybe even a couple. But um, I don't think it's. I don't think we're going to see a large-scale uh, 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 movement uh, to, of voters. I think we're seeing... It's uh, Gary Sheffield and, and Larry Walker among the right fielders uh, that are getting the uh, the additional support here with this space, not not Abreu. And it's kind of saddening, but uh, I wish he'd done just a little more to make it uh, uh, more of a slam-dunk case. Did the uh, Today's Game Committee uh, do it right? I was a little surprised. First of all, I was glad to see Dwight Evans finish third because I— I'm incredibly biased toward Dewey, but I loved him uh, as a kid growing up. I was surprised that Dale Murphy didn't do that well. Yeah, you know, there were, there were so many uh, – that, that was a packed ballot. Um, you know, and the, the, uh, the uh, putting Lou Whitaker and mm. Dwight Evans and Thurman Munson back into circulation in this format after, you know, after so many years of being on the sidelines. Whitaker hadn't been on a ballot since 2001 when he went one and done with the writers. Evans since 1999 when he was on his third time around with the writers. 
Uh, Munson had only been on that uh, uh, expanded Veterans Committee ballot uh, at the bottom there when in the in the early 2000s when they were uh, uh, letting the act the uh, Living Hall of Famers vote. Um, there were just so many directions for voters to be pulled. Uh, ultimately, what happened uh, was that the two guys who had who had come one vote short uh, in past elections, Ted Simmons uh, and Marvin Miller, both of whom I've uh, advocated for countless times, uh, were the ones who got in. I thought Evans made a very solid showing his first time around. Uh, I, would, I would like to have seen Whitaker done a little bit better, but uh, he got six votes in, in a very competitive field. Um, Murphy, you know, I, I, he's not a guy who does particularly well by my system, but uh, I said this in the wake of uh, Harold Bain's election last year, that uh, uh, if there was anybody I could I could stomach being uh, uh, waved through despite my own uh, uh, analytical misgivings, if you will, it, it was Murphy. I mean, a two-time MVP, shortish career, uh, but regarded uh, widely as the best player in baseball for a period of time there. Um, you know, I just think that uh, uh, the big thing for these guys uh, when they vote is the counting stats. And if you're short of 400, 400 home runs as he is, even just short, uh, and with that short career, um, you know, he's being penalized for the lack of longevity. Well, unfortunately, the people who vote don't always look at your research, the Jaws numbers and, yeah. and others uh, who have put so much time into this. So who do you think will end up getting elected this year? Um, well, uh, you know, I think obviously Jeter. I think Kurt Schilling uh, is going to be short. Um, I don't see him changing enough minds quickly enough to uh, uh, to get to close the gap from the what's it six about I think sixty three percent he had last I think year. Think so. Sixty three yeah. percent. Um, I think he'll put himself in position to be elected next year, uh, perhaps, uh, or eventually by the time his his ten year eligibility runs out. I think other than that, it's it's Walker or bust. Um, you know, it, it could be a one-man class. It could be a two-man class. I don't think it's going to be a three-man class. Um, and uh, you know, when you look look to next year, there's no obvious uh, uh, first-time candidate hitting the ballot uh, uh, next year. So we could be in for some lean years here. Uh, uh, in the near future. Well, we're looking forward to the announcement coming up next week. If you haven't done so already, get a copy of the Cooperstown Casebook and find out all you need to know about so many uh, great baseball players through the years. And I'm told, Jay, I mean, I saw it on social media, so it must be true that if you place your beer next to the Cooperstown Casebook, it'll make whatever beer that is taste that much better. <laughs> yes, that's true. A couple of my uh, friends uh, uh, photographed uh, the cover of my book uh, next to their drinks recently and uh, uh, I took that as quite the endorsement, so uh, uh, fun, fun stuff. That's Jay Jaffe with us here. His book, The Cooperstown Casebook. And, of course, check out his work on a regular basis at Fangraphs. When we come back, we talk with University of Maine professor, author, and historian Michael Sokolow. Quickly back after this word from our friends at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
are back here on Downtown, the podcast. Our friend Colin Hay doing the old men at work hit down under. Our next guest uh, was down under for the spring semester uh, working in Canberra. Michael Sokolow, a professor at the University of Maine, an author of the book Six Minutes in Berlin, and a writer whose work is seen in a number of outlets all around the country. We had an interesting discussion with Michael about those Australian bushfires and uh, about the upcoming 2020 presidential election. The last time you were on, it was uh, it was by phone from Australia. That's right. It was uh, Canberra, Australia, and I called you from the day ahead. That's right. Yeah. You were there for the semester and uh, sounded like you had a wonderful experience there. And, and you can obviously, as a result of that, really identify with the devastation that they're going through now. Yeah, I, I follow I'm following all the news uh, that I that I followed down there. And it's just incredible. I mean, I don't think we're getting any sense of the scale here or, or the size. I mean, we're hearing numbers like a billion animals. And mm. and uh, but if you actually knew the geographic locations, it would be mind boggling. I mean, for to give you one sense. We used to go to this beach from Canberra about two hours away and everything. I mean, just the devastation between the city. It would be like Bangor to um, Seal, Seals Harbor or Bar Harbor. Imagine if all the highways were closed, thousands of homes were just gone and you, you couldn't, there was no way in or out for anybody. Well, and someone did an overlay on social media, placing Australia over the United States and then showing all of the fires just to to really illustrate the, the enormity of this. And it's just hard to grasp. It, it's hard to grasp for a bunch of different reasons, like not just the geographic scale, but also um, the air is so bad. It's it's so bad that you can go on YouTube, for instance, and see people driving around with their respirators on. And so we'll never really know the full cost of this in terms of the health of the people who are breathing this stuff. I mean, everything's closed in Canberra. Right. I mean, like Canberra, where I lived, um, Australian National University, University of Canberra, all the schools are, are shut down, and uh, and you you see the restaurants, nobody's going out to eat. The whole economic situation has come to a standstill. And you would hope, but I, I don't think it's going to happen. You would hope that people would see this as yet another wake up call that climate change is real. This is the science is is real. This is it's not a fantasy. Yeah, they were, Australia was already far ahead of us in understanding climate change. Well, except the, right the prime wing. minister, right? Well, no, even, even they, even the, the right wing, he was, you know, he, he supports coal so much, um, Scott Morrison, SCOMO. But uh, even they only want to talk about the cost of mediation. They, they, they admit it's happening because in Australia you cannot ignore it. Mm. Uh, but one of the things about their prime minister that's fascinating to me is he comes from uh, public relations. We don't, we've never had a president who actually comes from public relations, not from broadcasting. I mean, he was, he was on The Apprentice, but public relations. He is so good, their prime minister, that I don't know if you saw this. He, everything he's saying now is so market tested. So he's saying, you know, now is not the time to talk about blame and responsibility. But at the same time, he's saying, you know, this is really an arson question. Why are we lighting these fires? He's misdirecting attention uh, perfectly. I mean, as a scholar of propaganda, I study this and I write about it. He is so talented. What's the global cost, not financial cost, but what's the impact of this going to be? You know, it, it's fascinating. I'm not sure it, if you consider the scale and size of it, I'm not sure we'll ever figure it out for a whole bunch of different reasons. I mean, one very simple reason is there aren't very many people in Australia. It's a, it's a massive mm. continent. You know, you have basically the New York City metropolitan area of population over a, a continent the size of the United States. Mm. So there's 
tens of thousands of acres that are just disappearing and nobody knows the long range, you know, cost that it'll be. And, and spinoffs that we don't even think about. Originally, Eric Meehan, a banker of wine and cheese, was in the other day talking about the fact that Australia has been such a huge wine producer over the years and a devastating blow to that. Absolutely. And, you know, you can't believe the statistics you're getting because the government is self-interested. So, for instance, they say that only 25 uh, people have died so far. Um, it's it's many more than that. If you go to if you go to, for instance, Reddit Canberra or Reddit Australia or places like this, they have cases of people on respirators who the, the particulate of the air is so bad that people are dying from that, you know, and, and they don't that doesn't count because, they're, you know, they're not burned up. They didn't lose their house in a fire. It's just bad air they're breathing. And um, so, so that's the kind of costs that we don't see that are just horrific. And and why? And this is not unique, but but why is it that Americans just don't seem to be very concerned about this? Is, is it as simple as well? It's all the way on the other side of the world. Well, that's what drives me crazy. I kept on, on Twitter, you know, I kept saying, "Hey, uh, why is American media not paying attention, not understanding it?" I think that's the first thing. You know, the uh, a professor at Harvard that was his reply to me was, "Hey, this is happening ten thousand miles from America." But the other thing I think, and it would be fascinating to see if this ever happened somewhere in Europe or the United States, I don't think the scale of what's happening is, is I don't think we can imagine it as a narrative. So, for instance, you might have heard of, um, they're going to cull in five days 10,000 feral camels in South Australia. I don't know if you saw this. It's going to no. start this Saturday. And it's because the feral camels are drinking the humans' water supply. They've had a drought for several wow. years. Uh, they need as much water as they can get to fight these fires and everything. And so between this Saturday and next Tuesday, 10,000 wow. feral camels in South Australia are going to be shot uh, by, from helicopters because there's no way to, to get to them otherwise. Right. I mean, how do you imagine that? You can't. It, it, you know, you can't go in the Everglades. There's, we're, we're not going to have a situation where you go in the Everglades or go into, mm. you know, northern Maine and need to cull animals like that. So that, that's wow. what I mean when I say I don't think journalists, I don't think this scale is understandable to American journalists. The other thing that isn't understandable is how hot it is there. I don't know if you've heard, but, you know, Penrith, which is a suburb of Sydney, hit 120 degrees. Oh. This is separate from the fire. Wow. You know, the smoke is coming in. You can't breathe. You're, you're running electricity. They're not even running the browse. It, this is mind-boggling. I mean, Americans can't imagine 120 degrees for four or five days straight. No, not at all. We're talking with Michael Sokolow here. Uh, on Dampton, uh, let's let's shift into the world of politics. And you were telling us before we came on, uh, you've got an, ex an exciting assignment coming up. You're going to the Iowa caucuses. That's right. Uh, a nonprofit out of Los Angeles that does uh, educational and civic uh, education called Kid Unity has invited me to be part of the program. And so uh, I'll be in Des Moines on Monday, February 3rd uh, for the caucus. Wow. All right. So let me ask you this then. Is the caucus still the best way to go when it comes to choosing candidates? Because it tends to be primarily activists, and they're often at the extremes in each political party. Well, I've only been to—I've only physically been to one caucus before here in, in Maine in 2012, just to look. I, I, it was Republican, and I wasn't a, a, a Republican participant. Um, and it's exactly as you say, right? Because you have the multiple votes, you have the call to order, you have this and that. And I found it fascinating. I talked to uh, my colleague, Professor Amy Freed at University of Maine, and we ended up writing a piece on it because— Ron Paul won. There was no question that Ron Paul won the most <laughs> votes in the caucus in 2012. And the Republican Party literally took through superdelegates, through all this political maneuvering, and made the winner Mitt Romney. And to me, I'd never seen anything like that before. It's fascinating. So I, I wrote a piece for Reuters on it, I co-authored, because also I didn't understand how it could happen. She had to explain it to me. So that's how we are. Well, it, it is the ultimate in 
political <laughs> deal making at the grassroots level. I mean, another example is um, the Republicans in Iowa in twenty in twenty sixteen uh, did it by voting, and the Democrats did it by caucusing. And when you look at the actual numbers of twenty sixteen, they're out. They're fascinating. Ted Cruz won Iowa by six thousand votes over um, any any one more delegates than Donald Trump. Yet on the Democratic side, it was this brutal fight having to do with proportionality in the caucus. And the final result, nobody remembers this, was Hillary Clinton 49.9 and uh, Sanders 49.3. It was a 0.6% difference. And I'll tell you, journalists I don't think report it well because I don't remember Sanders coming that close mm. that early on. Now, uh, we were also talking about this before we came on. Uh, on the 19th, 10 days away, the New York Times is going to announce who they're endorsing for the Democratic nomination. And it's going to be quite a production. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating to me. Um, by the way, the the author of the piece who announced it today is Kathleen Kingsbury. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner who used to be at the Boston Globe, and we had her up here at UMaine for Pulitzer Week a couple oh, years wonderful. ago. She's great. Um, but in her rollout on Twitter, she said there's going to be a television show. There's going to be full video, uh, full transcripts of every interview they do in the boardroom with each of the candidates. And there's going to be a podcast explaining how they made their decisions. There's going to be interviews with the board members as well as with the candidates. It's an absolutely massive, never seen anything like it, multimedia extravaganza. Um, I'm curious who they'll choose, but it, the, the rollout itself as a production is fascinating. And why do you think they're going to this extent to explain their decision? Well, there's a couple interesting uh, thoughts jumping around on Twitter. One is that their podcast is doing very well, the daily, the, their <laughs> daily podcast, but their TV and their video is not doing as well. And that they're going to try and leverage this, basically take that podcast audience and feed them to get more video and, and more stuff like that. Um, but I also wonder if this is what happens when you move from advertising to a subscription base. In other words, they have to please their democratic readership in new ways that they didn't have to previously. Right. I mean, the truth is, if they are as balanced as they say they are, or as they are open, you know, independent, neutral, objective, you, you choose the words, they would endorse somebody in the Republican primary as exactly. well. Exactly, yeah. But there, there's no announcement of that yet. Perhaps that'll happen. But, but. And is it, yeah, because I can't even recall, is it, common practice to endorse a candidate in the primaries it's actually not and it's not for a bunch of really good reasons um i just finished brian rosenwald's book called talk Ra talk radio america and in it he says that uh, rush limbaugh does not endorse in the primary um for a bunch of different reasons even when he makes it very very clear like everybody forgets rush limbaugh basically said vote ted cruz in 2016 right. um and it but he doesn't do it because it doesn't work and when Rush Limbaugh can't deliver, his irrelevance is made clear. And Limbaugh's smart enough to know this. And if you look at who the Republicans have nominated since Limbaugh became gigantic, like um, uh, Bob Dole, George W. Bush, uh, McCain, and then Mitt Romney, none of them were the Limbaugh alternative. Well, and, and you've written about this in regards to Fox News and the perception that people have of their influence and that maybe it's not as great, at least when it comes to choosing candidates or electing candidates, as we might think. Rosenwald's book is really interesting on this because you, you get to see Republican politicians really struggling with this, like Speaker John Boehner and um, Paul Ryan. And, and Republicans who are serious about governance, who are thinking about how to pass bills and how to make America uh, uh, better in certain ways, quote unquote, more effective governance, let's put it that way, um, are being misled by the perception that right-wing talk radio is stronger than it really is. Because it doesn't show up in the voting booth, even in the primaries for Republicans. 
And, and even Fox News, despite their numbers, and yes, they're in, in many ways the most watched news, but that's still not a lot of people. Let's put it this way. Uh, Fox News on a very good night, it gets about three, three and a half million viewers. On an average night, ABC World News Tonight gets 8.6 mm. million, okay? We're a country of 330 million. So 99.7% of the citizens of the United States are not watching Fox News on any given night. But it's this perception. That's the, that's the problem. People who work in the media um, constantly talk about Murdoch, constantly talk about Fox News. But if we didn't give it the oxygen that, that we do, uh, it, well, I'm not even going to say it has the influence it does because I don't think it, it, it has quite the influence it says it does. So, Michael, what is the value of, of an endorsement, whether it's from a newspaper or whether uh, this week with Julian Castro uh, announcing his support for Elizabeth Warren? If, if not in bringing people to that side, surely there's some value. Well, I, I might be giving away my column here and I might because I've been asked just uh, disclosure. I've been asked by an editor to write on it. Um, and, uh, and I was DMing with, um, Jack Schaefer of Politico today about this kind of thing. And so I might be giving something away here. It might ruin Jack's column. <laughs> it's but, just us. So no one's going to hear it anyway. That's good. But, um, here's the, here's the real deal. It's been studied. It's been studied newspaper endorsements and it's called the third person effect. And what it is, is the endorsement itself does not influence people. It influences very, very few people. But what it does is it creates the illusion that other people are now going to vote. And so people read the endorsement and they say, well, wait a minute, this candidate has more voters than I thought they did. Hmm. And that it's called the bandwagon effect. And it's been studied. And that is Speaking the power of, of propaganda. Of, right? <laughs> That's the, that is the power of an endorsement is it convinces people that other people are going to vote. And it's the idea of I need to get with other people hmm. that's influential. It's not this newspaper has authority. And by the way, if you ever want to check the authority of newspapers to swing an election, look at 2016. Donald Trump. I believe was endorsed by three or four newspapers, <laughs> none bigger. I think the biggest was in San Mateo, California or San Marco, California, something like that. Wow. And Hillary Clinton had over 200 endorsements. Now we still don't know that the impact that Facebook and social media had on the last election, but I, I think it's very interesting. Uh, the news that they plan absolutely no change to their policy when it comes to politicians, <laughs> advertising and targeting people. Um, I'm, I'm a cynic. When it comes to Facebook, uh, you know, uh, 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 Facebook is constantly apologizing, and, mm. and which tells you all you really need to know about them. But also something else that you need to know about them is that Peter Thiel is on their board of directors, right. you know. And so this is the world that, that they consider. I mean, it, it even disturbs me when they say, oh, we're going to change the ad policies. We're going to be more careful about advertising because everybody knows the trolls and the bots aren't buying ads. Right, right. <laughs> right? They're creating this uh, Twitter is also disturbing. I like Twitter a little better, but it's disturbing on one thing. You know that right now, it would be very easy for Twitter to identify and get rid of these trolls and these bots, but it would hurt their growth numbers. It would hurt their engagement numbers. They would get less advertising revenue. It would make them less influential. And so everything, everything about the system is geared towards keeping the trolls and bots alive. You know, that's the real problem. I was uh, I was reading a while back, and I, you, you may recall her name, the woman who was essentially in charge of, of Facebook News and has talked about her efforts to yeah. keep everything on the straight and narrow, but then she's got this separate life and identity that's that's very biased in one direction. Yes, yeah, Campbell Brown. I that's think. right, yeah, yes. Yes, yeah, Campbell Brown, a former mainstream news organization, news person. Um, but, right, you know, Facebook isn't... The, the thing that cracks me up is back in the middle of the 20th century... 
the people running CBS, NBC, and ABC would say, oh, we're right down the middle. You know, we're objective. We're in this kind of consensus thing. Facebook's not that smart yet. Like if Facebook right. really put it together, that's what they would do. They would say, oh, we can't do this or that because we really need to show all of you. We need to blah, blah, blah. This. No, they exactly like this Campbell Brown or, you know, they're, they're, they need to pretend they're more effective than they are. I know that sounds strange, but in the advertising world and the metrics they work in, they can't um, play the naive empiricist that the guys running CBS, <laughs> NBC, and ABC did back in the 1970s. Were the networks, and of course you have a family connection there, but, but were the networks down the middle or, or was that some well-crafted PR? <laughs> I'm invested in this. So uh, my father was the producer of the CBS Evening News. So um, um, I, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll phrase it this way with the caveat and disclaimer that I'm self-interested here. I think the level of professionalism involved was much, much higher. I think they were liberal. My father was a liberal. Walter Cronkite was a liberal. Everybody around him, I think they were uh, uh, liberal in certain ways. They uh, Let's be clear about that. But they were conservative in other ways. But I think the level of professionalism, the idea that we have to be accurate, was much higher back then. Well, and my perception, of course, growing up in that time period, first of all, it was all we knew. And you didn't have 24-hour news channels, the sources for media information were much more limited, but I, I always viewed it as a, an early and young consumer uh, of the news as the number one objective being speaking truth to power. And, and that that wasn't based on political party. It was based on that old adage, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Yeah, yeah. And one thing we forget is is the news shows. And even when CNN started, it was like this. You have such little time that they were, they were basically wire services. Where could we get right. the pictures and video from and how could we do this? But the problem was they were making a lot of money and they were investing it in bureaus around the world. Today, all these corporations, they'll just take any video. I mean, you watch your local news now and it's something you saw on Twitter or Reddit. It's, you know, a squirrel water skiing or some right. kind of viral video that they got for cheap. It costs money to produce really good news. And I don't think uh, the will is there anymore. But you've written too, and I found this very interesting. Sometimes there's a perception with the networks, the major networks, that news is a loss leader. And you've said nothing could be further from the truth. No, that's my theory. I mean, my, my theory is they're not making enough money. Because back in the days when the CBS Evening News, it, it, I mean, here's a, here's a little fact. The single highest advertising vehicle in the United States in 1966 was the Huntley Brinkley Report. It made $27 million. The CBS Evening News was second. It made $25 million. And when you have that much money, you can go after the president. You can tell the American people that, you know, Vietnam isn't working out. Right. And, and uh, your president is a crook, despite what you say. When you have that much money, your corporation is going to back you up. When you're in a, in a perilous state and you're relying on, on a different kind of revenue basis and people can boycott you, and all kinds of things. It makes it much scarier, I think. And even at the local level, and I, I don't think it's changed that much since I was working in local TV, that was always the, the top dollar for local advertising was to be in those local newscasts. Yeah, and um, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about WABI before and uh, Hildreth Communications. You know, when they sold to Gray, this is Channel 5 in Bangor for, for people around here. I didn't realize this, but did you know that Hildreth was the last original television license owner in the entire United States? I didn't know to that. To sell to a national chain. But I, I remember working with uh, Hottie Hildreth, who just passed away recently, and, and the Hildreth family. And uh, that was, yeah, well, and that was a time we've gotten away from that when you had family owned broadcast companies. Now, we're, we're one of the last here before 
the conglomerates came in, largely in radio, but but now even more so in television. And and, and, and that's a whole can of worms we could discuss another time, whether it's uh, what, what the Cox companies do or what Sinclair Broadcasting is doing. Sure, sure. But, you know, a, a, a really conservative person up here in this market would say, wait a minute, there was a Governor Hildreth. <laughs> who, who leveraged that TV station. So, you know, LBJ, everybody forgets. How did LBJ get rich? And right. how did LBJ right. uh, use his, spread his money around? He became the Senate majority leader in his second term in the Senate, which is unheard of. And it was because he was taking all this money out of his radio station in Austin, Texas. I want to ask you about this. Uh, Portland Press-Herald announced recently that starting in March, uh, their Monday edition will be Online only, no more print, no more delivery of Monday newspapers, clearly a sign of things to come in the newspaper industry. Yeah, I, I have to be careful about this because I was on the board of the Maine Press Association. And um, my student, Casey Kelly, uh, who works at the University of Maine, wrote um, an excellent piece for Columbia Journalism Review on what's happening in Maine. You know, we're the state that has only two daily newspaper owners. Right. And the only state in America. And so um, it's absolutely fascinating. Everybody's looking at us as sort of the canary in the coal mine because every daily newspaper in the state, except for the Bangor Daily News, is owned by a single person, mm. Reed, Reed Brower. And, um, and so, I, you know, I don't know. I know that he's, the printing company is subsidizing the actual newspaper. But without knowing the numbers, I can't say. I will say this. I have great confidence in the people who put together the Portland Press Herald, I mean, and, and Maine Today Media. It's mm. not called Maine Today Media, <laughs> um, right. but the, um, Lisa DeSisto and and um, and all the all the editors and the the, the columnists, the people like Bill Nemitzer, oh, they're, they're terrific. They're national level. Um, and I did hear that they were not going to have layoffs uh, uh, as part of this cutback. And so that's good. That's If that's true, uh, that's really good. Did newspapers misjudge? what would become the rapid growth of the internet and, and realize fully what was likely to happen in their industry. Are they playing catch up now? There's a great podcast with uh, John Skipper of ESPN talking about this with Bill Simmons. And um, they say, absolutely. They say, look, look, how did newspapers allow the village voice and the alternative papers to come in and eat their lunch on entertainment advertising? How did Craigslist come in? How did, how did newspapers miss, you know, X, Y, and Z as you, as you go down the line? But I don't know, I, you know. And the other, the other idea is that wait a minute, newspapers had a, were a product that had a three hundred year true. run of profitability, which no product ever has had. And so, it, you know, it's certain it, it's whether they run their course. So I'm not, I'm not sure yet. Um, you know, I'm hoping for the best because I'm an old newspaper fan. Me too, and and I, I miss. I still get a couple of Sunday papers delivered to my house because I still love that feel of opening up the paper and drinking my coffee and folding it the right way and, and going through all that. And, and yeah, I don't know. It, it, this is not the death of newspapers by any stretch. It, it's a different format, but it certainly changes things. And, and you talked about it earlier with the New York Times, because now you've got to offer something more for those subscribers, more original content that you can't find if you get that print edition. Yeah, and I, I went to a fascinating talk once where, where they were saying you have to start gearing the news in the newspaper for people buying it as a special thing. So, for instance, one of the things they said is local high school sports have to start having more names and numbers. They have to have more data so that the family can buy three clippings, you know, three copies and right. clippings and stuff. And, um, you know, maybe that'll work. I, I don't know. But there's there, there are these theories. And, and, you know, some papers have solved it. Some papers are doing – the Ellsworth American did not put everything on the web and, and did quite – and did better than most newspapers in America in that way. So I'm not sure. That's a fascinating time. Uh, Michael, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for coming in today.
Hopefully we can catch up with you when you're in Iowa. Yeah, maybe I'll call in. I'll let you give you give you maybe I'll break the embargo, give you an early re- return. <laughs> Excellent. We love it. <laughs> That's Michael Sokolow with us here on Downtown the Podcast. Our thanks to Michael. Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs, the author of the Cooperstown Casebook as well. Thank you for joining us and thanks to our sponsors at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown the Podcast. <laughs>